Hey Brian, how you doing? Hey Dan, we have had some snowy weather the last couple weeks. I think they're calling for it later this weekend. I saw that. How's your January? Oh, you know, hanging in there. I got a sick daughter today. Nothing quite like cleaning up puke for half the day. So, you know, it is what it is, but that's all right, because now we're here and we're talking about a movie, a movie that's important to me here on the 68th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. And that is a movie from the year 2000 created by Nickelodeon, but it was released into theaters. It was not a direct-to-TV movie. And that movie is called Snow Day. So, Brian, this is a movie that I have a fondness for, an attachment to, and I knew when we started this podcast that someday I was going to bring this to the the pod, bring it to you, for you to bring judgment upon it with me to talk through some of its, its zanier beats. But I'm kind of surprised that we made it 68 episodes. I might have referenced it in a couple of other episodes because this is just... It's one of those movies where the nostalgia short circuits my brain. So It's burned into your consciousness. Yeah. Had you seen this movie prior to this past week? I had never watched it. I knew about it because I used to rent a lot of Nickelodeon VHSs from Blockbuster. And they would have trailers for other projects. So I definitely remember seeing the trailer for this one. And Nickelodeon had several theatrical releases that I remember from this era. And, you know, you see one and it'll advertise the others. So Snow Day was 2000. Uh, Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, which I have name dropped on a couple occasions. That was 2001. There was another one I remember the trailer for that I was always most curious about, which was called Clock Stoppers. And it's about kids who get the ability to stop time and... Now that I have finally checked this one off this week, I I might have to dig that one out sometime. Yeah, I remember seeing the ads for that. Maybe it was on the VHS of this movie. Maybe it was just on Nickelodeon. But that was another one that was on my radar that I never saw as well. The trailer really played up all the fantastical fun one could have if they could stop time. So Yeah, I remember from the trailer that it was like, at first they think they're stopping time, but then they realize that they're just slowing it way down because they like go and look at a hummingbird or a bumblebee and the, the wings are still moving. But like very slow. Yeah, that's cool. That would probably require a little more CGI than what we get here in Snow Day. Although there is one special effects scene of note that I'm looking forward to discussing. Oh, yeah. Let's dive into this movie and we can talk a little bit about the film itself and some of the context. And then I can also tell you a little bit about why this film has stuck with me as kind of a prelude. So Snow Day was actually written several years before it came out. So I I actually just listened to the commentary. Believe it or not, Brian, I watched this movie three times in prep for this episode. It might be the most I've watched a movie for one episode. (laughs) Do you think it warranted the most watches of any movie we've covered so far? Uh, Not in an objective sense, certainly not. But I watched it once just to, to soak it in. I watched it once to take notes, and then I watched it with the director's commentary to get a little bit of inside insight into the the making of the film. I will say it wasn't the most informative or illuminating director's commentary, but I have a couple of tidbits I'm going to throw in here. Oh. So, Well, you're, you're at least, you're well informed. Yeah, yeah. 
one of the reasons I wanted to listen to the director's commentary is because I wanted to get a little more background on the creation of this movie because it was actually written several years before it was filmed as a finale film or a special for the TV show The Adventures of Pete and Pete, which was a coming-of-age dramedy that aired on Nickelodeon. And two of the writers on that show created the script and then just held on to it. And have you ever seen Pete and Pete, Brian? So one thing is that I didn't have cable until I was in high school. So I would only catch Nickelodeon when I was out at my grandparents' house in the summertime. But also, I think Pete and Pete was just a little bit before my time. When did that run? What were the seasons? So Pete and Pete has a pretty long and interesting history. Kind of like The Simpsons, it started out as a little short that appeared in other stuff. And then it became popular enough to get its own show. So the shorts started in 1991. I was only two years old when Pete and Pete started airing. But the the show proper ran from 1993 to 1996. So that would be okay about four years before this movie came out. And I was still only... I guess I was eight at that point. I could have watched the show at eight. Uh, I don't even know if we had cable when I was eight and certainly was watching more Cartoon Network than Nickelodeon at that point. So I was three to six at this point. So it's not impossible that I would have seen it, but we didn't go and start visiting my grandparents every summer until I was seven. So Mm. that I think is the key factor. So the Adventures of Pete and Pete features two kids named Pete their brothers. <laughs> what? You're telling there's two people named Pete in the show Pete and Pete. Yeah, but hold on, the weird thing is they're brothers. Why it's like uh George Foreman. I don't know. You don't normally have brothers. Yeah, it's a George Foreman situation. But back in my day when I was catching up with some of the great coming of age shows, I watched maybe three or four episodes of Pete and Pete, and I really liked it. I I really want to catch up with it. It's got an absurdist streak to it. It's kind of a more mellow Ned's declassified, maybe. And typically, I mean, you'll recognize this from Snow Day. The the younger Pete was a little more manic, heightened adventure. And the older Pete was in more kind of teen, very light drama, sitcom-y stuff. Okay, so they've got a few years between them. Yes, exactly. And Snow Day was eventually rewritten to have Hal as the older brother. And they rewrote the younger Pete to be a girl, Natalie. So they more or less used the same script, but they took Pete and Pete and made them Hal and Natalie. Peter and Petra. Yeah, something like that. I have some mixed feelings about this because I love this movie as a standalone love in the the sense of affection. I'm not going to be arguing it's a cinematic masterpiece by any stretch, but I really appreciate this film. I also think it would have made a great finale, but when the show ended, Pete and Pete... It just kind of drifted off like they didn't ever come full circle. And I think this might have been a fitting finale, you know, maybe a missed opportunity, but I I don't know exactly the specifics. It was came out five years after the show ended. Oh, well, but here we are with Snow Day from 2000. And I, I think I'm ready to talk just a little bit about my overall view on this film, which is that I saw it at age 11 or 12. I think it was probably 12. I don't think I saw it in theaters. But I saw it like the following winter when it streamed. Streaming wasn't a word we were using when it aired. Yeah, what were you watching with streaming in 2000? Man, I'll tell you. Well, 
we'll we'll get back to the like music video in a little while that was uh spawned from this film but that was uploaded like 12 years ago and that was already like 10 years after the release of the film so i gotta say i kept having to remind myself this came out in 2000 it felt more modern than 2000 it felt like 2006 or something maybe 2005 i don't know other than a couple things yeah. Well, also, I mean, I was just struggling to understand that 2000 was 22 years ago. I know. It's unreal. 22 years ago. God, man. It's like, you know how they talk about a pre-9-11 world and a post-9-11 world? I wonder if maybe we should be talking about a pre-snow day world and a post-snow day world. <laughs> That's really what transformed the culture. <laughs> but I, I saw this movie when I was 11 or 12. And I think that's the right age, or at least for me, it was the right age to see this movie because I could relate to both of the kids that star in this film in some way. Like I still got the thrill of a snow day and the the sense that one would want to have this grand adventure on a snow day that Natalie has in this film. And I also was like, that was the age I was, I don't know, seventh grade or whatever, crushes were starting to become a really big deal in my life and i also like had some wish fulfillment kind of like a goofy movie when max goes up on stage and makes this big grand gesture for roxanne there was definitely a sense of a wish fulfillment and b like the fact that he ended up getting like the best friend sorry spoiler i'm gonna jump into it now end up getting the the best friend as as the girl at the end was also like a warm fuzzy too it, it really clicked with me at that age, and it's it's stuck with me ever since, even if in the years since I can maybe nod my head to the fact that I think, as we mentioned at the end of last week, unlike La La Land, which we discussed last week, this would never be involved in a best picture controversy. So, yeah, <laughs> I guess we 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 made that joke last time. It, it's a good enough joke to repeat, at least in my opinion. <laughs> bring bring them up on the stage. I was about to make it, and I'm like, wait a minute, this this sounds familiar in my head. Any other overarching thoughts on this movie before we kind of dive into the cast and then the plot here, Brian? I'll just say that 2000 was really a throwback. I, I remembered being there. It's, you know, it was almost time to call on one of those memes like, it's been 84 years. <laughs> or the, I was there, Gandalf, 3,000 years ago. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like that. I mean, yeah, I'll say for any any new listeners, I was 10 when Dan was 12. So that's 2000 for me, 10 years old. Right. So this movie, Snow Day, stars Mark Webber as Hal Branston. So Hal, to me, Hal is like a dad name, but he's the teen here. So he's the, he's, I don't know exactly how old he is, but I'd guess like 15 or 16. I can't remember if they say it in the movie. Did you catch if they gave an exact age? No, I don't think so. He's a high schooler, though. Yeah. I know that much. And then Xena Gray plays the little sister, Natalie. I haven't seen her in anything before or since, but she is probably the realm of like eight or nine here. Yeah, I've seen her in one other film, and I'm going to save that and talk about it in a little bit. The two big names in this... Well, by far the biggest, the actually the lead, if you look at the casting on like IMDb or anything like that, the, the first build actor is actually Chevy Chase. He's clearly not the star of the movie as far as the story goes, but he plays the father and he's also a weatherman. His name is Tom. 
So kind of cool. Like that's some real star power you got in your comedy here, Chevy Chase. I thought that was pretty cool. I definitely appreciated that more now than I did when I was 11 or 12 years old. Yeah, they got some bona fides. Who played the mom? I feel like I'd seen her before, too. So the mom was played by Jean Smart. And I, I feel like I recognized her, too. Have you watched Frasier? Okay, yeah. That would have been where I'd seen her. Yeah, I think she was in Frasier. And she's been... Oh, looking at this now, she's actually been pretty active in dramas over the past 10 years, too. Yeah, she's good in this, too. I'll say just as a spoiler up front, I like the cast of this movie. Uh, there's not really any major weak links for me. I mean, I don't have any strong feelings about Natalie, the the younger sister, Zena Gray. I feel like she's fine. But I think most of the other people actually kind of shine in their roles. So The other big-ish name here is Chris Elliott, who you've seen in probably 10 other things without realizing that you've seen him in them. Um, or maybe you have thought about it. And he always plays a goober. He's like kind of got a skeleton-looking face, and he's got some real nasty tooth makeup in this oh yeah and he's always like hocking loogies and like snorting all the time he always plays someone gross if you've ever seen there's something about mary he's extremely gross in that i haven't seen that one but yeah he was a creep here two things the actress the mom was kim possible's mom and also the mother in The Oblongs, which is a show I brought up, uh, I think, in our zombies discussion, where it's it's another, like, dark vision of capitalism. Interesting, okay. Chris Elliott, though, I remember from his, maybe, definitely his first, maybe his only starring vehicle called Cabin Boy, which is a pretty strange comedy. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I, I found it in a stack of DVDs and tossed it on, and it's an odd film. I've never seen that one. Yeah, that... Wow. So, oh, it's not directed by... It was produced by Tim Burton and apparently directed by Adam Resnick. I, I could kind of see some Tim Burton influences because there was interesting special effects in that one. There was, like, stop motion and maybe some puppets. I remember because it's like a pirate story, and so there's, like, the north wind shows up, like, the cloud with the face... It was almost like it was almost like Monty Python. That's interesting. I'd catch up with that. I used to not like watching Chris Elliott because he made me so uncomfortable. Like everything he's in, he's gross. And as time has passed, I've really come to love him. He's always excellent in whatever he's in. He is gross, but he's so good at it. And also still like somehow likable underneath all the griminess that he plays. <laughs> and he's terrific in this. So he plays... A uh, snowplow man. So he's the guy who's plowing snow, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as the plot thread. He's kind of the villain of the film, or at least one of them. And then a couple other names that that show up here. Probably the biggest other name here is Emmanuel Shriki, and that is spelled Emmanuel is the first name, and Shriki, C H R I Q U I. But I, I looked it up, and it's pronounced Emmanuel Shriki. So I'm going to go with that. So, first of all, she was 25 years old when she played this, which, you know, kind of to add on to why this was a big deal for me when I was 12 years old, I definitely had a crush on Claire Bonner in this movie. It's come up before. I like the brunettes, and uh, she she definitely was my type when I was 12 years old. So, And I feel less bad talking about that right now because she was 25 years old when this movie was filled, but she does play a high schooler in this uh, movie. Nice. And she plays the kind of dreamy popular girl that 
Hal is going to be pining after. Some other names to pop up here. We got Josh Peck. Josh from Drake and Josh. He's here. Yeah, very young. Yeah, so this is, I would imagine, I need to look at when Drake and Josh started, but this has got to be at least a few years before Drake and Josh. Yeah, Drake and Josh was 04. Didn't both of them, or at least Drake, came up through the Amanda show? That's correct. They actually premiered before, uh, it might have been on the Amanda show. I thought it was all that. It was either all that or the Amanda show that they premiered on. But they appeared on the Amanda show right around the time that this was filmed. Yep. Yeah, the the Schneider verse. It's it's that part. It's stable actors. Right. And then I would say the last kind of character of note here is Skylar Fisk plays the best friend Lane. And I I didn't remember her being particularly good, but as I watched this time, I thought she does an excellent job with the character. So we can talk more about our thoughts on these characters as we go along. Uh, any other thoughts here before we jump into? the film proper here. I'll just say, if you haven't picked up on it yet, this is a type of movie that Dan has brought to the table a couple times where it's a lot of stuff happening in a short period of time. A few episodes back when this came up, I called it a crowded hour film. I love that. Yeah. Pulling from a, a Teddy Roosevelt quote. Yeah. It's just a moment in your life when a bunch of important things are happening all at once. And in this case, as you might be able to discern from the title, it is over the course of one snow day. I guess a little bit the night before. Yeah, that's right. Actually, it's kind of funny, and I'm sure you caught up on this, Brian. We've talked about the notion of what makes a Dan movie, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent, what makes a Brian movie in the history of this podcast. I was kind of surprised how many things there are that line up with what today we call a Dan movie. <laughs> so maybe this like planted a seed in my brain that has like shaped my entire perspective of narratives and entertainments I like to consume now that I'm in my 30s. Who knows? Yeah, that's funny. I was yeah checking off boxes on my list. <laughs> so Snow Day opens during what is a particularly warm winter in generic suburbia. I, I can't remember if they mention any location touch points. No, they do. They say where it is. It's in Syracuse, New York. Okay. Which is a little bit odd for me because it's pretty far north. Yeah. Snow would be common in Syracuse, New York. That's a good point. And here, they say multiple times they've never had two snow days in a row. I don't know. You were skeptical? So one thing I've heard is in areas where it snows a lot, their snow plowing and snow treatment infrastructure is much stronger. So there might even be something to that. Like if it's a place that gets a decent amount of snow, they just deal with it when it happens, you know? That could be a good point. I haven't lived in a place like that, but I have heard that. And maybe Chris Elliott's just really good at his job. <laughs> I Although I think it's not very location specific. Like to me, this is this is the suburbs that I grew up in. Like this, it's really felt like mid-Atlantic suburbia to me. I agree. It felt like it could have been just about anywhere that snow sometimes happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, the film notes that it has been a particularly warm winter, much to the chagrin of kids in the neighborhood. But we, we meet this, the principal of the school. His name is Principal Weaver. And he's just this unhinged freakazoid, like celebrating the misery of the kids. There, there's not much in this movie that's particularly realistic. And I think this movie works pretty well when it leans into its more cartoonish element. But I really found myself loving the Principal Weaver scenes. And I was glad to hear on the commentary that the directors and writers 
initially had less of a role for Principal Weaver, but they like added in more scenes of him getting pelted with snowballs because the actor was really good at it and hilarious and just like a goofball on and off set. So that energy carries for sure. <laughs> He's swinging for the fences. Yeah, the big one is, not to spoil it here, but the stinger at the very end of the movie is the principal finally gets home after getting pelted with snowballs the whole movie and he thinks he's safe. And then he, apparently, for whatever reason, there are people in his house ready to throw snowballs at him. And that scene did not exist when they started filming. And they're like, we need one more thing to add to the end of this. And I think it's got to be Weaver getting pelted one more time. So Okay, well, that's literally the last moment in the movie. But yeah. Yeah. No, I was wondering, why didn't he start out at home? Where where does he start out? He's because the whole movie is on this quest to get to his house. I didn't understand why he wasn't at his house to begin with. You know, Brian, I do not know either. I don't know if there is an answer. I don't think there is. Like, did he sleep at the school? It was unclear to me. Maybe. Because he keeps saying, he's like talking to himself. He's like, I just need to get home. Maybe he wandered out in the morning thinking it was going to be a school day. I don't know where he was, though. He was indoors when he heard that the school day was canceled. So Exactly. So I was, I was unclear. Yeah. But we meet weatherman Tom Branston. So this is the Chevy Chase character. And he's a struggling meteorologist. The way that it is framed is he is number three in a three network market. So he's kind of the the schmucky local weatherman. One interesting thing, the show Drake and Josh, the dad is also a weatherman. I don't know what it is about Nick. I don't know if that's true of Pete and Pete too, but I guess that's like a, a good dad job. I don't know. But the mom, the woman that Chevy Chase is married to, played by Gene Smart, is a workaholic businesswoman and they have three kids so this is the the high schooler Hal the elementary schooler Natalie and then there's also a third kid named Randy he's just this goober of a kindergartner like a, a toddler but age six just yeah Randy is so obnoxious he's just <laughs> like the crazy kid running around acting like an animal I haven't seen much of recess but it was like Oh, the way they present the kindergartners? Yeah. As like primal, like a tribe. That's what it made me think about, think of a little bit. It's not exactly the same, but just uncontrollable force of youthfulness. So pretty quickly we, we meet Hal and I guess he's at a pool watching the high school swim team practice. And he's just like blatantly staring at this young woman doing her diving practice. So this is Emmanuel Shrieky playing Claire Bonner. And that, that's the girl that, that Hal has a crush on. She, he has a massive crush on Claire. And we meet him, like, kind of gaping at her. And then he, like, slips and falls into the pool. And we get a thing that is now frequently mocked on the internet, at least I've seen. It's like a, yep, that's me. You might be wondering how I got here type freeze frame to, to meet Hal. Yeah, so at this point in the movie, we've had a lot of non-snowy things going on. Because the principal who loves heat and hates snow is out barbecuing and and now the the hot girl is diving and i guess maybe hal is on the swim team or something or he's just there unclear but yeah it's like there's there's swimming and there's cookouts and it's like what season is it where are we when are we <laughs> the title is snow day but yeah. it's coming right right it does introduce us to the idea that it's a warm winter but i still wouldn't think of barbecues and 
swimming as warm winter activities. But one thing we learn is that Claire has just broken up with her D-bag boyfriend, Chuck Wheeler. So I've been wondering, it made me think, how many movies have we discussed, Brian, where there is a girl who has an early clash or a breakup with a D-bag boyfriend or fiance? Yeah, well, there are a bunch of parallels, I thought, specifically between this one and Some Kind of Wonderful. Yeah, for sure. There's there's shared threads with other movies we watch, too, but I just kept seeing beats from that one. Yeah. And now might be the time to share that Hal's best friend is a girl named Lane. She's kind of this tomboyish friend, and she's always hanging around him. Doesn't take too much reading between the lines to see that she has feelings for him in a way that he does not reciprocate. And so, listeners, this is where I confess that this is the third example of a movie that I have brought that has the specific story structure that I feel like I've seen everyone in existence of, which is where there's a boy and a girl who are usually teens. They don't always have to be. And they're best friends, but platonic best friends. But the girl is actually into the guy and the guy feels like he has a shot with the dream girl. And eventually he has what I call the love epiphany where he realizes that actually what he needs is not the dream girl, but the best friend, the one who's who's going to be there for him and has that has that love epiphany at the end. So we saw this in, as Brian mentioned, some kind of wonderful. We also saw it in the time loop movie Premature. I have one other example of these in my back pocket that I will bring out at some point, assuming this podcast continues. But here we are, Brian. How long did it take you to realize it was one of those movies? So the first time we meet Lane, I was like 90% confident, but there was like another friend there. There's like the, the stoner shaggy guy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wasn't 100% convinced then that she wasn't just like sitting there at the table. Uh, but then the next scene, they're like having some conversation about like, well, how you need to know what it means to be in love. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, this I'm checking that box on the Dan list. <laughs> It's one of those movies. That's right. But I mean, there's other examples, too. Like uh, you mentioned Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide once already this episode. And that was a plot point they eventually got to. Definitely. Yeah. So then we also meet Natalie. So she's the younger sister. One thing I like about this movie is how the teen and Natalie, the probably upper elementary, maybe just in middle school kid, have this weird, but to me, very plausible relationship state where Hal has like entered puberty. He's like full throws in horny puberty. It's kind of funny to me watching this movie now is like how it talks around the horniness. Like he's basically just horny the whole time, but it's also a PG rated movie. So, you know, he can't get too much into that. But anyways, Natalie is still a full on child at this point. And they still are like, you know, they like each other and they get along as siblings but they're like at very different states in life. And the way that this kind of relationship state is portrayed is with this kind of runner of how, I guess he has these action figures that are kind of collectible action figures, but he sees them as like a grown up collectible thing. And she sees them as like a play toy. And so that's kind of like the thing that is the symbol of the different way they view the world. 
it didn't really work for me. Yeah, it was it was almost like that was something they would play with when they were younger. Right. And, you know, it's something that bonded them then, but now he's coming to see them differently. And they're kind of like fake He-Man type toys. Maybe like G.I. Joe sized action figures. Have you seen the 40-year-old virgin, Brian? I have. I have some thoughts on the 40-year-old virgin. We might need to talk about that sometime. Okay, I have thoughts on it too. I'll, I'll say it's a, it struck me as a very sad film. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because he's cooler than I am, and it, it bodes ill. <laughs> but that movie also has a gimmick of collectible action figures that there's a struggle about whether you play with them or whether they are things on a shelf. And there, the metaphor worked a little bit stronger for me than it did here. Yeah, well, I'd say it's more of a metaphor in that situation because it's about, you know, being sealed away. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess that's just what I thought of. Yeah, these these action figures, I think the only reason they included them is so they could have a kick-ass stop-motion scene for about 40 seconds at the end of the film, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. Oh, man, you're just Spoiling. bringing it up now. Yeah, well, suddenly at like the second act climax or partway through the third, she starts talking to the action figures and they come to life in like Ray Harryhausen stop motion. Yeah, it's real stop motion. It's not CGI. Yeah, that's one thing from the, the commentary I learned is they thought about doing CGI, but they're like, it would look so dumb with these action figures we've seen the whole time. We're only going to have one small scene with them. Let's just do real ass uh, stop motion. And so they did it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it sticks out because, as you said a while ago, it's like the only special effect sequence, except for some of the stuff with the snowplow. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So at that diving practice, Hal had recovered one of Claire's ankle bracelets. So like, I guess she's a diver and she had an ankle bracelet and it fell off and he kind of fell in the pool. That's when we get the kind of freeze frame thing. And he recovered it. And there's a whale charm on that anklet. And he sees this as a sign that it's his destiny. He's got to get together with Claire. And so he he decides that's his mission. He's going to go he's going to use this as the kind of means to make an in on the recently single Claire Bonner with her ankle bracelet, which is from the start just real pathetic, but it kind of works in 16-year-old boy logic. Well, it's like he has a reason to talk to her. So, yeah. And of course he ropes Lane, the the best friend girl, into helping him out. But now this this kind of day before the big day is done and Natalie she makes a wish on a snow globe for a snow day. Even though it's been a warm summer, she wishes for a snow day and she kind of falls asleep and the snow globe falls out of her hand. And one thing they pointed out in the commentary, which I did not catch, but I was kicking myself for not catching is this is very explicitly a citizen Kane reference, the snow globe falling out of the hand. Have you seen citizen Kane, Brian? I have seen citizen Kane. It took me a while, but I, I have seen that one. Did you pick up on the, the fact that the snow globe falling out of the hand? N not at the time, but I figured out where you were going when you said she dropped it. Yeah. I Now, <laughs> where my head went was making a wish on a snow globe is a pivotal plot event in Elmo Saves Christmas. So ah, that's a good I, point. I, of course, thought it was an homage to that. <laughs> what do you think is the more influential cinematic piece out of those two? 
Hard to say. But then it cuts to her waking up. And sure enough, overnight, some amount of snow. I feel like it's inconsistent as we go throughout the movie. It ranges from several inches up to several feet of snow fell overnight. Because they say it's record breaking. A couple of times they say it's record breaking. So does that mean like for the time of year or what? Because again, this is Syracuse, New York, which is like upstate New York. They get a lot of snow up there. <laughs> I'm going to Google it right now. I feel like this is a Californian conception of Syracuse, New York. That's a very good point. Because these, these weren't newbies who were making this movie. So they've been probably living in L.A. for years now. So I just Googled it. According to the National Weather Service, in 1993, a single storm dumped 42 inches of snow on Syracuse. So I guess in this fictional world to break that, it would need to be at least 42 inches. Most of the time, we're not seeing 42 inches of snow here, but that's all right. And when Natalie sees this, she looks out the window and she shouts, Snow! And uh, one revelation from the director's commentary is in the script, in the screenplay, there were seven O's and one W in snow as it was written. So <laughs> I thought that was an important point. Yeah, these are the things you only learn from the director's commentary. <laughs> one line that comes up here that gets repeated frequently throughout the movie is anything can happen on a snow day. I spent a few minutes pondering this one, Brian. Do you think that anything can happen on a snow day? I wanted to talk about this because I was wondering, like, what has your experience of snow days been? Like, what was your favorite thing about snow days? And what did you usually do on one? Because it's like this family, at least the two siblings have a whole snow day philosophy about the unlimited possibilities of snow days. And on the one hand, that like swells my heart a little bit. I, I feel very invigorated by that idea, but I don't know where they got it. It's a good question. Um, one thing I love about this movie, even today watching this movie, I, I just adore is I definitely had this sense that a snow day was a magical thing. Maybe not anything can happen, but there was a giddiness to it. It was like a day that you were, uh, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to do multiplication tables. What do you ever you do in elementary school? It's just going to be a boring day. And then, bam, no school unexpectedly. And also you get to go out and play in the snow and everybody's outside playing. There was a giddiness to that, a thrill to that, that this movie appreciates and captures. And I, I do admit, maybe fueled by this movie, when I was like in middle school and less so high school, because in high school... You and I both went to a magnet school and I had to drive a half hour to get to the magnet school. So it's not like I was going to be walking outside and seeing any of my schoolmates. But this concept of seeing people outside of the school framework that I normally wouldn't see just kind of out in the wild playing because we did have a big hill that we all went to and it was like a quarter mile away. It took a half hour to walk there and a half hour to walk back. I don't know. I kind of appreciated that. On the other hand, the older I've gotten, the more snow day has just meant sit around and watch TV for a day. And so, to like, I guess to your point, there is something kind of sad about, to me, a snow day. Now it's just an inconvenience or else a chance to be lazy. So I don't feel the magic anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, for me personally, worth noting, I guess, that for a long time I worked for a company that was tied to the school calendar. And so, like, even after primary school and high school and college, I was still paying attention to snow days. Still getting snow days. Okay. Um, But it was, you know, usually you go out to the big hill and, and maybe you slid down a couple times. Then you come back and you have some hot chocolate. That's a snow day to me. A great day. And yeah, I can see how the uh, social order is overturned by not having school. You know, it's a nice breakup to the weak drudgery. But I like that you use the word giddy and giddiness. Because what I've found the last couple years, especially now that I'm an old embittered adult, is that... Snow days really do boost your spirits. Just having snow on the ground, I think it must be related to the seasonal affective disorder, depression, the the sads that people talk about. But like just having a higher level of light makes you feel good. Oh, interesting. And so like the reflection of the snow, you just got more light all over the place. You can like see way further out into the woods and like at night, there's still light shining up off the ground and I can feel it making me happier. I like that. To me, snow day now means I have to shovel my driveway and clear off the snow from my windshield and the top of my car. Although that's less true for the last two years, you know, I've been working from home, but. Well, there is that. But I, I like your snow mitigates sad theory that's a good one i'm gonna keep that in my back pocket it just makes it not so dark and gloomy yeah yeah everything's brighter it's true physically brighter emotionally brighter it's there for sure um but no sooner have we been introduced to the snow day than who enters the scene but snowplow man this is really this great snowplow i really love this bit of production design it's got like snowflakes on it the same way that somebody gets teardrop tattoos for every person they kill. And it's got like these gnarly chains on it that the narration says is made from the braces of old students. That was such a good schoolyard urban legend. Uh, I could imagine kids telling each other that. And the camera work, you know, we're not talking about anything super avant-garde here, but it's like, it's clever in the way that it, uses close-ups and high angles and canted angles to like make this machine feel monstrous like there is no doubt oh and good sound editing too good fully bringing in to like everything's clunking and clanking together and clashing as the the snowplow drives by i really like this the snowplow that that chris elliott so he's the guy who plays snowplow man he's driving and he has a bird. So I thought it was a crow. Apparently there's some talk on the commentary about they wrote it as a parrot, but it was not physically possible to get a parrot in for how cold the shooting conditions were. <laughs> so they just made it a generic bird and it kind of looks like a crow, but it's apparently there's a specific species of bird that's good and cold. And that's the one they ended up getting. So, okay. Yeah, I think it's got like some white on the chest or something. So it, it looks a little different from a crow, but I was thinking crow too, which goes well with like a villainous creep. So Brian, you texted me about this 
concept that you and your family have that Snowplow Man made you think of. Yes, so I'm glad I get to bring this to the table now, because this is the concept of what's called a gonculator. This is a term that my mother taught me, and I had always wondered if this was like something she came up with completely from whole cloth. I guess the word originally comes from an episode of Hogan's Heroes, where I think the the POWs have like some gadget that it just doesn't really do much of anything, but like the Germans see it and think it's some secret thing they're working on, or maybe vice versa. But what it has always meant in the Terrell household, my household growing up, is that it is a big, imposing, scary truck that features prominently in a movie and that it just gets introduced as like Dan said, a monstrous machine that is shot in some imposing way. And there are more gonculator movies than you would think. The key example to me is Fern Gully, the last rainforest. Did you ever see that one, Dan? No, I haven't seen that one. Okay. Well in that one, there are these, workers who have this big logging machine and they're driving it through the rainforest in australia and it's harvesting the rainforest and i guess this thing is called the leveler but to me that's the quintessential gonculator but there are other movies too like in the rescuers down under the poacher played by george c scott has this vehicle that uh, the wiki calls a bushwhacker <laughs> and that's a gonculator I had some fun reading about the Bushwhacker. You sent me the Disney wiki page about the Bushwhacker. Like in the Crystal Skull Indiana Jones movie, they're going through the rainforest in that, and they have this big machine with saws on the front cutting down the trees. If it's cutting down trees, pretty good sign that it's a gonculator. <laughs> but also, like in um, George Romero's Land of the Dead, there's this vehicle that the survivors have that they can drive around in zombie territory with. And I, I would count that, you know, there's room for debate over what makes a gonculator movie. Like you could say, oh, is every Mad Max a gonculator? But I, I think if everybody has one in the world, it kind of dilutes the presence of the gonculator. It needs to be like a sole entity. Yeah, gonculator is relative. It's like Mr. Incredible. If everyone's special, no one's special. If everybody's got a gonculator, nobody's got a gonculator. Everybody's just got a vehicle at that point. Right, exactly. But Snowplow Man has got a gonculator. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a pretty... Where does this land in the gonculator pantheon? Is it kind of in the tier, the upper tier, or did it did not quite strike you as much as some of the better ones? Well, they are able to lay him low by the end of the movie, but I, I, that's par for the course in the subgenre. Okay. Uh, I, I was just glad to be able to talk about it. I, I didn't know how long it would be before we got a gonculator. Yeah. So so at this point, we we got the plot threads laid out. We got a snow day. We got a, a somebody plowing the snow day, trying to clear out the snow. We got Hal chasing after his dream girl, Claire. Meanwhile, his doting and interested best friend is at his heels the whole time. So we hit the promise of the premise, and those are the A and the B plot. We Natalie and her friends trying to inhibit Snowplow Man such that they can get that rare coveted second snow day. Because as you mentioned, Brian, it comes up that they've never had two consecutive snow days. I want to point out that we had here in Northern Virginia 
five consecutive snow days just last week. So I was a little less impressed with this dream of theirs, but it still captured a thrill, I would say. like Yeah, it was always exciting when it happened. Exactly, yeah. One thing I want to bring up is this fort that Natalie and her friends have. Mm-hmm. It's like this subterranean igloo with multiple entrances and exits and tunnels and things. And they have it wired for electricity because the friends are down there playing either a PlayStation or a Nintendo 64. And it's one of the Rugrats video games. Mm, good catch. I didn't notice that, what video game it was. It's just like a flash, but I could tell that they were Tommy walking around. That's funny. So I actually have an anecdote about this from the director's commentary. So there was some controversy about this after they had shot it in that a snow forts are like really unsafe and are very out these days because they can collapse very easily. So like homemade snow forts generally frowned upon, at least if there's like a whole roof above them and B having any electricity out in snow is also really dangerous because snow still conducts electricity. I think the same way that water does. Yeah, I mean, it's just water, so it probably would. Right, so so that's considered super safe, or excuse me, the opposite <laughs> of that, super unsafe. Experts consider this safe. <laughs> Something one should definitely not do out in the snow. And so there was some concern, like, are we setting a bad example? Well, will there be liability? But, like, there is other unsafe things going on in this movie, so I feel like that one kind of drowns out relative to some of the other things so but yeah no i i agree that was kind of striking what did you think of the snow for just that it was cool i liked it i would want to slide down in there as a child Mm -hmm. so the a and b plots again natalie and hal the c d and e plots that we see are one is tom so that's the chevy chase dad trying to come out of his third place hole of being the the weakest weatherman in town and trying to pass this guy named Chad Simmons as the top weatherman in town. So he's constantly like trying to one up Chad Simmons. Another one is the mom. So the workaholic mom gets stuck watching Randy at home while she's trying to get work done. I really liked in the director's commentary, they talked about Randy that apparently, first of all, everyone on set loved him. He was like very charming but he was also a pretty coachable. So like he kind of did what you wanted, but he was also just really weird and like off kilter. And a lot of the stuff that he does is apparently somewhat improvised, or at least the way that he did it was improvised. (laughs) And apparently his thing was he kind of didn't have a sense of social boundaries. This is the actor. He would just walk up to random people on set and start hugging and kissing them. Just like imagine a guy fixing the lighting and here comes Randy, the six year old walking up to you and he starts hugging you and kissing you on your side. It's the the biggest laugh I got when I was listening to the director's commentary. (laughs) So he's essentially not acting. Yeah, basically. He's just a known quantity (laughs) being Randy on and off camera. Yeah, being unleashed for sure. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, And then the last one I already mentioned is just scene after scene of Principal Weaver getting stalked and abused by elementary school kids. There's something to be said for the fact that the adults in this movie are largely just trying to do their jobs and the kids are actively getting in their way 
nonstop throughout the movie and making their lives horrible. Very much a kid's perspective movie that I could see being frustrating to adults as they were coming at it from fresh eyes. <laughs> I felt bad for this principal. As far as fictional principals go, he's definitely on the less villainous side, except that he like laughed at them at the start of the movie and said he was anti-snow. At this point, he's just getting pelted with snow. <laughs> and it, it made me think of that episode of The Office where it's the only one where Dwight gets the advantage in the pranks on Jim. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And by the end, <laughs> Jim is like battered. <laughs> like He's just jumping at his own shadow because he's afraid <laughs> that Dwight is going to come around every corner and hit him with another ice ball. That's pretty funny. Whenever the principal would get pelted with snowballs, it was just people who happened to be filming there that day. So they had snow machines and they would just make a bunch of snowballs and then film the actual actor getting pelted from off screen by whoever was on set throwing snowballs at him. I just imagine like a guy setting up the rigging that day and uh, all of a sudden, hey, come spend five minutes chucking snowballs at an actor. And he got like snow in his nose and his ear and stuff and... Uh, he was apparently a trooper with the filming, but I thought that was pretty funny, the image of that. Because <laughs> you always see it from off screen, the snowballs coming in. But... Right, you don't see the throwers. A couple of, I'm just going to go through some of the, the highlights of scenes across these this promise of the premise before we get to the climax. Because it, it kind of, it's kind of treading water for a bit. We We just get little snippets in in this each of these plot threads one is a mob of horny boys including hal doing the what's that movie called say anything doing the say anything gag where they're like outside the window pelting pebbles at the window trying to get attention of the girl inside so it's not just hal it's like this horde of like a hundred guys or something like that i thought this was funny yeah, no, this was this was good. It reminded me of Sleepy Hollow and especially the Hallmark version that we watched where they made it clear that Brahm and Katrina were together early on and then had a falling out. And then it's like everybody in the whole town is put on notice. Yeah, and they're varying levels of pathetic. There's like a three second shot of this goofy ass looking guy with glasses saying, reciting some poetry I love you, Claire. I want to stroke your hair. And one person says, I think it's Lane. She says, it's like Claire stock, as in Woodstock. I thought that was pretty good. I liked that the one friend who is just kind of occasionally hanging around showed up to this. And they're like, what? You're interested in Claire? He's like, why not? It's open season. Yeah, that was pretty funny, too. Uh, one thing I, I learned... I. I guess I got a, a handful of nuggets from this director's commentary because I got another one here. Apparently, originally, the scene was a lot more elaborate. They were going to spotlight a bunch of different pathetic dudes trying to get Claire's heart, including someone doing a uh, clarinet solo, like Squidward, I guess. <laughs> uh, someone who was going to bring her a pet puppy. But they ended up trimming it down, I think probably before they shot it. So like, you, you just get kind of a sense of the chaos of it. But I would definitely watch an extended version of this scene. 
Another thing we get is Chevy Chase wearing a wide variety of really humiliating costumes. So part of the thing is since he's in third place as the weatherman, he's got to use gimmicks to get attention. He wears like elf costumes and snowflake costumes. And the worst one is this horrible snowman outfit. And as part of that one, he rides down a sled on Suicide Hill and a stuntman playing Chevy Chase has a massive pratfall at the end of it. So, yeah. Always good to see Chevy Chase humiliating himself in some regard. So Hal gets to do some big professions of love throughout this this portion of the film. One is he basically steals his dad's microphone and declares his love for Claire on live TV. And he reveals that, oh, I really know you. I really love you. Here are some of the things I know about you. Your favorite bubblegum and the color of your eyes and stuff. Coming on a little strong and a little creepy for someone who Claire doesn't even really know. But I was always attracted to this grand gesture when I was a kid watching this movie. Yeah, same. And, you know, when everybody else is doing it, he's at least using the one medium that's exclusive to him. It's like he has access to the TV station. So that's how he's going to set himself apart. So I thought that was clever. I want to throw in here Hal. So he's played by Mark Webber. I like this guy. I thought he was charming. He had a good way of, of saying things and, and just hanging around that he wasn't just a loser. He had like an oddball charm to him. I thought he was good casting. Yeah, I think he makes a good protagonist. Uh, I will say one of the things he says he knows about Claire when he's like talking to Lane or somebody, he says, I know how many times she blinks per minute. <laughs> and that's a little far. Yeah. But <laughs> go off into the weeds as I want to do. One of my favorite YouTube channels is this guy called Pan and Coic, and he does really in-depth analysis of Super Mario 64. Okay. And just Super Mario 64. <laughs> but he studies every single mechanic of it, and he has a whole like 18-minute video on the blinking systems. <laughs> and there's eight or so blinking cycles that govern who in the game is blinking at any one time. That's hilarious. So we're nearing pan and coic level obsession with Claire Bonner here. Yeah. And that can't be healthy is what I want to say. No, I think that's, that's good. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the snowplow man front, one of Natalie's ideas to slow down snowplow man I, I don't know what the initial plan is, but what we see unfold is Josh. So this is one of the friends of Natalie. He plays a fake corpse. So like they do a thing where he lies down in the road. First of all, super dangerous. He's kind of blended in there and he's they've like made him a fake injury. They've squirted ketchup on him and it straight up looks like ketchup. It does not look at all like blood. But I think the idea is they're going to do like the classic con act where you have a fake hit by car, fake injury, and you use that as a way to get some leverage, to get some advantage. And so Snowplow Man walks out and sees that it's ketchup fake blood here. And he happens to have French fries with him. And he dips down the fries that he has and like chomps them real nasty as he's he's doing this. I like this little little bit. And what Natalie ends up doing is they they go and they steal the bird. So I guess it's some way to ransom the snowplow man. But the snowplow man steals Josh. 
yeah, just straight up kidnaps <laughs> Wayne. So uh, one earlier approach to stopping the snowplow was uh, they they like startled him somehow and he veered off course and he hit a car in the road and like realistically i think that would be enough to stop it for the day because it was very public yeah and like okay now you gotta like get a ticket or a lawsuit or something you just destroyed that car in the middle of town i'm glad you brought up that scene another thing i learned from the director's commentary is when they were filming anything with the snowplow but also kids around the snowplow he watched a lot of the wizard of oz when he was filming it and try and tried to steal tricks of the munchkin scenes from that. And he was inspired by the house landing and the wicked witch dying on that scene where the snowplow crashes for the first time. Cause it's like the false hope that they, they've stopped snowplow man. And so he, he was thinking of the, the wicked witch dying when the, the house from wizard of Oz lands and, and kills it in the, when she first gets to Oz. So obviously this film has got some uh, historic pedigree, you know, <laughs> it's up there with Citizen Kane, Wizard of Oz. These are the <laughs> movies that we should be thinking of and, and considering it in the same stratum as. I got one more to drop when, when we get there. I, I should point out now, since this is a, the moment with Josh Peck kind of highlighted, this is his, one of his key scenes in the film is there is a lot of fart fully in this film. Like whenever Josh is on screen, we hear fart noises. I'm not fond of the fart noises personally. And if if I'm not fond of them, the directors and writers were just outright disdainful of the fart noises. But they had a really good anecdote that they did like two or three test screenings of the film with kids and literally the most common feedback was it was so funny when the kid farted. <laughs> and so they went in and they like tripled the amount of fart noises. <laughs> and during the commentary, they were counting each fart as it came. It comes out to six fart noises by the end of the movie. So he, they said there's six farts, three kisses, and unfortunately, none of those overlap. So we don't get any fart kisses at the same time. Oh, Man, missed opportunity. <laughs> Another grand romantic declaration is when Hal takes over a radio booth at an ice rink. And this scene is notable because the DJ prior to Hal taking it over is manned by Iggy Pop. Very influential punk rocker. And here he is. Apparently he flew in for like two days to, to film this little thing, but... I never knew it was him until I was looking at the casting and, and uh, listening to the director's commentary this time around. So just kind of a random, totally out there cameo for someone to appear there. That's cool. I, I think this is the second skating rink romance scene we've seen since the Rocket Fire documentary. <laughs> That's pretty good. I forgot about that. Yeah, for anybody keeping track. Yeah, no, I, I like that. The ice rink is here. That's another one for me that made me nostalgic of my childhood because... I grew up in a town that had an ice rink and that was where that was like a social hotspot is they had some open ice times and kids would just go and hang out at the ice rink. Kind of like a almost a 1950s type thing or something. You weren't doing too much of that in the 1990s and 2000s. But I always thought that that was cool that the town I grew up in had one of those. And 
I never actually went to an open ice time, but I always romanticized the idea of it. And I was glad that that, that showed up here in the story. A nice time at the ice time. I'm just kind of scattershot here on moments that called to me in some way. Another one is there's this diner that appears a few times. We get a moment that to me recalls a favorite gag from a favorite movie, which is a goofy movie. There's also a stoner third wheel type guy there. Here, as Brian mentioned, there is a stoner buddy who hangs around some of the scenes here. And in a goofy movie, the stoner guy's really into cheese whiz, and he makes the leaning tower of cheese and shoves it into his mouth. In this movie, he makes a French fry log cabin at the diner. I, I liked that, too. Of course, it's a PG-rated movie, so they can't make him actually a stoner, but all the cues are there for him to be a stoner. And another thing I learned from the commentary is that this diner is actually a diner that they would eat at, and they really liked this diner. They're like, this is where kids would hang out. So they rented it out and they shot it. And apparently you can tell when you watch it. It didn't strike me, but that it's a very small diner and they had a really hard time actually shooting it in the diner. But I thought that was a pretty cool on location detail that I learned there. I would say the moment that it really clicks into place that this is one of those specific movies that I described earlier about best friends falling in love is when Lane is trying to convince Claire to give Hal a shot. And she does the thing where she like, is talking about how he's so great, revealing her romantic feelings for Hal. That's when it, it really clicked for me. I mean, you kind of know it's it's not really hiding it leading into that, but that's kind of the moment it solidifies there. But on the Natalie and Snowplow Man side, it starts to come to a head. Remember, Snowplow Man straight up abducted Josh Peck. And, and meanwhile, Natalie has abducted the bird. Oh, speaking of the bird... I always thought it was weird about the bird and the writers confirmed this is kind of a carryover from the absurdity of Pete and Pete that it was meant to be like kind of like the Sven and Kristoff thing in Frozen where it's kind of joked that they have a, a relationship slightly outside of nature's laws that that was intended here for Snowplow Man. It's like uh, my octopus teacher thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, something like that. But they have a hostage negotiation. So they have this back and forth argument that goes on where the Snowplay Man says, you need to return the bird. And Natalie says, you need to return the Wayne. And so they shout, the Wayne, the bird, back and forth, longer than you would expect in a sort of Lisa Needs Braces dental plan type gag. And I enjoyed that. Uh yeah, how many crimes has Chris Elliott committed at this point? I don't know. It's quite a few. He's he's kidnapped a child on top of destroying a car in the street. He he went to Natalie's house and tried to kidnap her. That's right, because he's like pretending that it's a take your local neighborhood kid to school, except take your local neighborhood kid to snowplow demonstration day. Yeah, it's like a snowplow ride along day. And he's being real gross with the mob. Yeah, no, I agree. You're talking felonies here. It's like, whatever he's trying to get out of this, it's not worth it. <laughs> You've got to consider the possible consequences of your actions. Maybe the signature gag of the movie is, remember, Hal has a bracelet, an ankle bracelet of Claire's with a whale charm on it. And he makes this really elaborate snow design of a whale. We're talking like football field sized whale decoration which he reveals to claire 
And she looks at it and she said, you made this for me? Yeah, but I like zebras. Brian, this is a good joke. This joke holds up. I like this joke. Yeah, it's like a hefty four words. It's a lot of gravitas in that reveal. It's funny because it's been like the crux of the movie thus far for Hal. But also it shows and kind of foreshadows that he maybe doesn't actually know her in a real meaningful way that he thinks he does. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like when you just get breadcrumbs from a person and those are the only things you know about them, you place a lot of value and import on them. Mm -hmm. And you assume that they must also, because that's what they gave you. But no, they can mean a lot more to you than, than you do to them. And the information could just be trivial. Uh, the explanation is like she had a whale on the thing because her boyfriend gave her that, but it didn't have any special meaning. It was just like what he happened to find. Right, exactly. It'd be harder to make a zebra in the snow, I think. That's true. Like you'd have to do all the stripes. And and like, how would you when you only had white to work with? Oh, good point. Be, be tricky. Because that's right. A zebra is explicitly black and white. Just a couple other things before we hit the climax of the movie. There's... A weirdly long and intense snowmobile chase. It didn't really do it for me, but I kind of admired the ambition. It, does, it has like some of the Return of the Jedi speeder maneuvers where they're like slowing down to make this one crash into this one type things. Oh, yeah. I was going to say the pod race, but you're right. It is like Jedi. Yeah, there was a lot going on in this sequence. It would have been work to put it all together. Yeah, the mom who's kind of been hanging around watching Randy, the five-year-old. So she's working from home. And so her conflict is like, is she going to watch Randy and interact with him or just be a slave to the work? She has some sort of proto-Zoom technology on her computer. She also has a cell phone. I got to say, for 2000, it felt pretty advanced. I don't think people actually had that. Yeah, she's very plugged in. I'm trying to think who would even have an internet connection good enough to work this stuff right this video setup not too many people i don't think i remember it was a big deal when i was a freshman in high school so 2003 that one of my friends got high speed broadband and so he it was like a megabit and that was just implausible to me like how could you get a megabit per second that's crazy and you would definitely need more than that to do what this mom is doing here so I don't know. Yeah, I, I think we got our faster internet round about 2001 when the when the Her first Harry Potter movie came out. I remember going to the Harry Potter website and, you know, I typed the address and I hit enter and I was just immediately at the site. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what? No, you got to wait for a page to load. You got to, like, hear the tone. How is this happening? What a time to be alive. Right. Yeah. The last thing that kind of precedes the climax we already mentioned it's this cool little stop motion bit, and I'm glad they threw that in there. I didn't entirely get the action figures overall, but I was watching it this time, and I don't know if I was, had ever been struck prior to this time, just how kind of random and cool it is to have legit stop motion in here, even if it's only for like a 30-second scene. Yeah, it's very different from everything that comes before or after. It's like all of a sudden we got a little Clash of the Titans scene. I think that's also Pete and Pete-esque, not in the sense of having stop motion but in having some absurd hyper reality tossed into everything else that's going on so yeah yeah like some mixed medium stuff right 
so now we're at the climax. Um, and let's just kind of go through the the threads. So one is the mom is she finally gets her big call, her important call. She's been working towards all day, fending off Randy. And she just so happens to get it when she's trying to help Randy in the snow and Randy throws a snowball and the phone falls into the snow. And, oh, the mom realizes, really, I should be spending the snow day with my son. Like, honestly, if I'm her, just do the 10 minute phone call and then play with the son if it's going to get you a lot of money or something like that. But I appreciated the sentiment that you got to appreciate your family when you're there. Yeah, it's like the work will still be there later. But like, this is the youngest child. Maybe it's the last child. Yeah. It's like, when are you going to get to do this again? There's some emotional heft there for sure. This made me think of the show that's already come up multiple times. Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. So the third lead on that show is a boy named Cookie. And literally all of his plots are he has some problem. And rather than solve his problem, he obsesses over some technology that will make his problems go away. And it's kind of a technophobic or at least skeptical of modern technology actually improving our lives mindset that I detected a little bit in this plot thread. It's like, cause she has all this newfangled technology that she's trying to like make it so she can work, but really she, that's not a problem she needs to solve. She just needs to spend the snow day with her family, you know? So I, that made me think of Ned's a little bit there too. Oh yeah. Maybe a Luddite message at work. <laughs> yeah. On the teen romance front here in the climax, Lane, the best friend, finally hits her breaking point with Hal, who has been spending the whole day fruitlessly chasing after Claire, and she abruptly kisses him and reveals her feelings. So it's like a, a dramatic moment here for Lane and Hal. And I, I don't know, I distinctly remember, it's weird, what things stick in your brain. I remember watching this scene first time I saw this movie when I was like 12 or something. And being blown away that like the whole movie had led to that. Yeah, had you picked up on anything at that point? I, I, I don't know, actually. If you had not seen other movies like this, would you have known that this was going to happen? To be honest, maybe not. I honestly think it's kind of abrupt. Yeah. But because we've covered other movies like this, I knew it was coming. Right, right. I think it does a good balance of making it a little bit of a surprise, but also paving the way to it. I mean, it's not really a surprise, but it is like a twist. I don't know. I, I think it's a pretty good balance of those two. But I think when I was 12, if I picked up on it, the scene still really surprised me. So. Yeah, it, it maybe it, it's like a baby's first trope. You know, it, it's a good uh, introduction to that setup. Yeah. After Hal has his kiss with Lane, he, he chases down Claire at the pool and she's there diving by herself. I guess that's you know, people have their way of unwinding. And he detects that her way of unwinding at the end of a crazy day is to go to the pool, presumably heated, and practice her dives. She's the only one there, and he approaches her, and they, they have like a heart-to-heart, -heart, and then she kisses him. But he admits that he thinks that he's making a mistake and should actually be with Lane. Brian, what did you think of Claire in this scene? Did you have any opinions on her? Well, I felt a little bit like I did in Some Kind of Wonderful where suddenly, like, his big plan is working. It, it like, seemed that it might be disrailed with the big zebra twist. Mm -hmm. But, no, it's like, actually, they have some chemistry. 
actually, it seems like this is going well. And do you pivot on a dime like that when you find out that the the friend who was there all along has the feelings? I, I'm not sure. Yeah, so do you go the pretty and pink route where you have the pining best friend get over it and the main character get together with the dream romance? Or do you go the some kind of wonderful route and have the lead shoot down the dream romance despite having a good shot at it and go with the best friend? And so this goes the some kind of wonderful route and he gently shoots down Claire to me, the most implausible thing is she was like totally okay with it. She like, I don't know, seemed to have finally invested herself a little bit in it. And she's like, oh, Lane, yeah. Oh, no, I get that. Okay. Even though she had just kissed him. And that was, they said in the director's commentary, they worked really hard to make sure the audience always liked Claire, even after everything went down. And to me, they did that to the point that stretched credulity to me. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. Because I definitely have no ill will toward Claire, so I guess they did their job, if that's what they wanted to achieve. But yeah, you you almost want to know more about what she's thinking at the end of this. Right. Maybe the least plausible of the, the plot thread climaxes here is Tom, the Chevy Chase meteorologist. Remember, he's chasing down Chad. Great name, by the way. Chad the Weatherman. And trying to get him to admit that he is a fraud. And basically on air, he corners him and says, tell me what snow is. But like Chad can't even say what snow is. It was so ridiculous. He was like bullshitting words like, well, there's a little bit of magic in the air and this and that. And this attempt to make him seem like a fraud works. And like the crowd starts pelting him with snowballs and chanting Tom's name and stuff. And I was laughing my ass off when I was watching this. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I guess people just can't stand for a fraud weatherman. <laughs> Apparently. They're they're not going to worship a false idol <laughs> like that. Oh, Tom knows how to read a Doppler radar. He's got to be the real deal. Chad, let's throw snow at him. So, <laughs> Also, like if you're a weatherman in Syracuse and you can't coherently talk about snow, that's pretty bad too, I got to say. On the snowplow man front... He's got just one more street in town to plow. And so we get Natalie. She kind of had this crisis of faith a little bit earlier. Oh, is she going to actually settle for one snow day or will she make the one last stand to try to get her second snow day? So this last street, she goes full Tiananmen Square where she like stands in front of the snowplow. And just as snowplow man confronts her, this massive horde of kids appears over the hill. I feel like this is a trope, but I couldn't state specifically what movie it was inspired by, like Seven Samurai or something, where you kind of hear the soldiers in the the sound mix gradually, and then they all appear, and there's like a mass of them, and they all storm Snowplow Man. Yeah, I felt the same. It was done well, because they make a wind sound. She says something like, listen to the wind, which I guess is like a catchphrase of one of the action figure characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. It gets brought up earlier that one of them says, listen to the wind, which is a weird catchphrase. It's stupid. Like, how often is a situation going to come up where that's what you say? (laughs) Uh, But they say it here, and then all the kids from, like, all over the town start making a 
genuinely kind of scary wind howling. Like if this was actually an enemy army, you would be freaked. Yeah, no, that was good. One bit I really liked from the director's commentary, they had to hire a bunch of extras for this scene and they were all kids. And basically, apparently when they were shooting, what they announced over the, the loudspeaker was, all right, now you storm snowplow man and go. And then everybody ran down. It was apparently they hired 200 extras to do this. And they said they're not convinced that all of the kids realized that the actor was not actually a snowplow man, not actually a villain. He said there was one kid in particular who kept punching Chris Elliott in the ribs during the filming of this, thinking that he was a bit like an actual someone he should be attacking. And the image of that just made me crack up. <laughs> Some dumbass eight-year-old plowing down Chris Elliott and wailing on him. I think that's pretty great. A lot of method actors in this project. People who just uh, stay in character all the time. Apparently, yeah. When they, they pull this off, their plan is they're going to tie Snowplow Man to a sign. This dude's going to die of frostbite. It's, fr it's like 20 degrees outside or something. And they steal the snowplow and they're going to, quote, unplow. What is that? We're, we thought we might do a little unplowing. That's what she says. What does that even mean? How do you unplow? You can't unplow. It's like the the road, the snow is on the grass and the curb. You're gonna like drive up on the curb and put the snow back in the street. I don't know, Brian. What I would assume that's what they would have to do. What I'm predicting is a lot more destroyed infrastructure here. <laughs> it's like cars crushed, like fire hydrants knocked over. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't show really any of it happen except for, what, the one Gus that knocks over the ex-boyfriend. Right. They show one bit of it when Plow essentially chases down Chuck Wheeler, and apparently this stunt was actually really dangerous, and they had a professional stuntman doing it to have a snowplow pushing snow and a person getting caught up on it, which you actually see on camera. But it's a stuntman, and apparently this was really dangerous, according to the commentary. Yeah, I was surprised they went there. I thought, oh, what? wait a minute. Because previously, like when Corpse Josh looked like he was going to get plowed, I don't know, it, it was scary. Yeah, I, I thought it was meant to be like, you know, a lethal threat. Right. And then they do it like a Three Stooges move. I'm like, oh, I guess those stakes weren't as high as I thought. And this is just when Chuck Wheeler, the D-bag boyfriend, is finally ready to catch up to Hal and beat him up. But Hal, of course, at this point is going after Lane, the best friend. And he finds Lane. They're back at the ice rink. I guess the ice rink is still open, but Lane is the only one there or they've broken in or something. And one line that came up earlier is when Lane was talking about what it means to be in love with someone is love isn't about fate and magic bracelets and destiny. It's about finding someone you can stand to be around for 10 minutes at a time. I thought it was a good payoff, a good callback that when Hal is finally professing his love for Lane, he says, you got 10 minutes. And then the movie ends with Principal Weaver. I, I mentioned this earlier, Principal Weaver getting home, except there there's more snowballs for him to get pelted with. Just a goofy way to go out on the movie. And that is the end of Snow Day 2000. A couple other thoughts I wanted to mention. At one point, 
Hal and Natalie had agreed. So this is the older brother and, and sister. They had agreed to spend the next day hanging out together. So kind of resolving that sibling rift I talked about earlier where they're kind of at weird age differences. And that was one of the inciting incidents of the film and kind of resolving that. I like this this consideration of the complex sibling dynamics and appreciation for staying close as siblings, even as you enter different life states. And that's as someone with five younger siblings and someone who considers himself close to all five younger siblings. I appreciate the challenge of that. I'm glad it showed that and showed them intentionally trying to do that, even if it wasn't intuitive. So, yeah, I'm surprised you hadn't brought that up yet. The fact that you have multiple younger siblings, because I feel like that's probably a reason that this, as well as like later Nickelodeon projects like Ned's Declassified and Drake and Josh resonated with you, Hmm. you know, that you stayed aware of things maybe with a younger demographic because you were still plugged in via younger siblings. That's a good point. I, I really like that insight, actually. Shows like Drake and Josh and movies like this, there certainly is some element of that. Even other things like Blue's Clues, where I was too old to appreciate them at the age that I would have, but because my siblings were, that was a show that, you know, all the things you mentioned, this movie, Drake and Josh, Ned's Declassified, Avatar The Last Airbender, Plenty of others were kind of on my periphery because my siblings were watching them. And that's a good point. It's like a parasocial aspect of this. A, a meta element is because of my closeness to my siblings, I was able to appreciate this film when I otherwise might not have actually watched it. Right. And that idea is going to be a talking point in next week's episode. So stay tuned. Mm. Last thought on the movie before we get to our good things and not so good things. <laughs> the movie goes out. There's two songs in the credits. The notable one for sure is this song called Another Dumb Blonde by Hoku. And this song has been stuck in my head maybe two days a year, every year since this movie came out. It's just always been like somewhat in my head, floating around my consciousness. What usually makes you think of it? Is it something that's associated with snow days? Yeah. So it's usually snow days or snow that makes me think of the song. So, Brian, I, I watched the music video and I sent it to you. What did you think of this music video? I love this. <laughs> because the setup is that Hoku, who is this pop singer, a blonde, I guess she was Don Ho's daughter. So she's like part Hawaiian. But Don Ho is only part Hawaiian anyway. She doesn't look Hawaiian. She looks totally Scandinavian. Anyhow, she is sending like a breakup email to her boyfriend because she's found somebody else and, and he needs to move on and find another dumb blonde, I guess, because that's how he treated her uh, is the message. But the, the medium, the delivery is this video attachment to the email, which he is opening up on... What did they call these things? Emacs? The the very, very first Emacs? It was those rainbow yeah. CRT Macintosh computers right. that came in the, the clear colored plastic at the same time that, you know, the N64s were doing this. And you could get like the watermelon colored one and the atomic purple and the electric green. Right. There were like five different colors. And, and you know, it was the Game Boy Color era where it was the same deal. 
man, I I love this. And he's sitting there <laughs> experiencing this roast via <laughs> this technology that only existed in 2000. Just imagine you had this like really attractive girlfriend. You're in high school and maybe she was long distance or something. And she not only broke up with you, but she like hired extras and a filming crew and wrote a song to declare her breakup to you. Man, it's it's a trip. Yeah, that's rough. And it's got clips from the movie uh, kind of baked into the, the music video. I like any time that a music video does this like Smash Mouth's All Star, which is actually tied to Mystery Men. Right. Not Shrek. But yeah, you watch that music video, it's got uh, Mystery Men in it. And, and this one has quite a bit of Snow Day footage if you watch Another Dumb Blonde by Hoku. The second song in the credits is is a song that was written and recorded at the last minute by the actress who plays Lane. It didn't even appear on the soundtrack because it was recorded so late in the filming process. And that was another bit from the commentary I learned. And I kind of like that second song, too. I'm going to have to look it up and listen to it again. Oh, man, I got to hear that one, too. Yeah. One thing I wanted to bring up before we get into ratings is another movie from around this time that I was kind of thinking of as I watched that's called Max Keeble's Big Move. And you didn't you have not seen this one, right? Correct. Okay. well, what made me think of it is that it also has a very young Josh Peck in it. And uh, so I guess this is 2001, so it would have been the year after Snow Day. But then in the prep for our recording today, I was also thinking, you know what? I think I've seen this actor who played the sister, Natalie, in Snow Day, uh, the actress Zena Gray, before as well. And I looked her up, and she's also in Max Keeble's big move, paired again with Josh Peck wow. as one of the friends of Max Keeble. But then I was thinking about it. And, of course, at this point, had the Wikipedia article open. And now I'm suddenly convinced that Max Keeble's big move was like an attempt to milk the popularity of Snow Day or something. Rip off Snow Day. <laughs> because the storyline in that is um, it's not a Snow Day, but Max Keeble, central protagonist boy, finds out that his family is going to be moving and so he believes that he's never going to see anybody that he knows again. So basically, there's no consequences to anything that he does. He can finally be open with everybody, finally do all his wildest dreams in the town because he's going to go to a new town and never have to face the consequences. Okay, that, that's a fun premise. So he's like an elementary schooler, like a late elementary school, like fifth grade or something. But this movie also has the setup of the the friend, the female friend is pining for the guy. Only this time it's the, the Xena Grey character is the friend because everybody's younger. Okay. Oh, oh, and the villain is an ice cream man driving around in a crazy gadgeted ice cream truck. Oh, man. I got to watch this movie. Everything you're saying sounds like I would get a kick out of this movie. <laughs> So maybe in the summertime. You said Josh is in it too. Right? Yeah, as a character who I guess is named Robe because he just spends the whole movie wearing a bathrobe. <laughs> it's like uh, I just watched Once Upon a Time in the West, the Sergio Leone movie, and Charles Bronson plays a nameless character who it's noted that he doesn't have a name. 
but he always plays a harmonica, and so everybody just calls him harmonica. It's like that, but he's he's wearing a robe in this case. Right. And a weird bit of synergy and things layering on each other in the goods. I just looked up Zena Gray while you were talking. Her most recent credit is she appeared in The Blazing World, which was the directorial debut of Carlson Young, who was played the Dream Girl character in Premature. So in another one of these movies that has these story structures. So the actress from that movie directed a movie that Zena Gray then appeared in. So things come full circle here. It's a small world after all. <laughs> so Brian, some good things and some not so good things about Snow Day. Anything, I, I honestly hit almost all of my points in my intro prelude and then as we were kind of talking, just to kind of emphasize, I like the cast. There's not really any weak links in the cast. And I, in particular, I like the cast on the, the teen romance side. I really like Hal. I really like Lane. And I really like Claire. And I'm always glad when there's a good D-bag boyfriend. So I appreciated that. But then we got Chevy Chase in the mix. We got Chris Elliott just stealing scene after scene as Snowplow Man. So for a, you know, not massive budget kids movie, pretty enjoyable cast from my perspective. That's one strength for me. And yeah, I just think this captures the thrill and the giddiness of a snow day. I just want to emphasize that this to me makes me remember how I felt about snow days. So any other good things you wanted to throw in, Brian? I'll just second that I definitely felt that as well. And more recently, probably than some, I I do like snow days. I like the concept and the experience. Yeah. So one thing that I I have said when we've had these kinds of stories in the past is what do you need to get one of these stories right? So you need to believe a, that the boy has a shot with the popular girl. You need to believe B that there's good reason that the best friend would actually be really into the boy, but he would maybe not quite realize it. And then C, you also really need to believe the love epiphany. You need to believe that he would actually come around on it. And I would say for me, this gets a check on all three boxes. I actually think it does this trope, this story structure pretty well. I believe each one of those aspects. Um, I would say the most dubious is like, he's already sitting there kissing Claire Bonner. Would he actually step away from that? And Maybe not, but I would believe that he would have a realization that he actually enjoys being with Lane. So even on that front, I would say it it, it scratches the itch, if you will. And maybe this was the prototypical one for me, so I don't know. Yeah, I can see that. I think the line is good about the spending 10 minutes together yeah and that really they have spent so much time together and they do authentically know each other right let's talk not so good things um did you did you have any specific not so good things you wanted to throw out there brian i mean in a lot of ways it kind of feels like a tv movie yes i mean it is coming essentially from a tv studio and i don't know just it's it's like a kid's movie and that's not a bad thing but 
in some ways the production values are a little lower. There's some silliness. <laughs> There's a lot of fart sounds. Yeah. Could it didn't need six farts. That might have been a little high. I, I guess it takes two farts to balance every kiss. <laughs> two farts to balance a kiss. Maybe that's our episode title. I agree. I, I don't think this movie's a disaster by any stretch. I mean, if you read the reviews that are online, people are really panning this movie. I don't think this movie's a catastrophe. I think it's a TV movie in spirit, but with significantly higher budget than a normal TV movie. And I think where that shows it's things like the snowplow, like really feeling like a proper, what is it? Gonculator. Yep. And handfuls of special effects. Like there's a fake snowflake that you trace from the sky down to the ground at the very beginning of the movie. And there's the stop motion bit and having a slightly higher budget cast than normal. I I think it's a step above your average TV movie, but I also think it is very much a kid's movie. It's a Nickelodeon movie. It's not, despite the Citizen Kane and what was the other one? Wizard of Oz references. Oh, the third one I forgot to bring up is the snowplow. There's one shot, and I think it's when they're doing the hostage exchange, and the, the snowplow kind of drives over a hill but it drives like lateral to the hill first and so you see the top of it and that was intended as a jaws reference where you see the fin of the shark driving and you kind of see the top of the snowplow driving <laughs> so we got jaws we got citizen kane we got wizard of oz references in there oh man. but despite that it's not it's not high art by any stretch anytime your fart fully goes beyond the amount that you can count on one hand I think you've you've gone out of art film range. <laughs> From art film to fart film. <laughs> Although maybe what's that one called? Swiss Army Man or something like that? Oh, man, that's uh, one I would have stuff to talk about, too. <laughs> yeah, where Daniel Radcliffe is a corpse puppet that is manipulated at least part of the time via flatulence. But Brian, I'm ready to rate snow day what about you all right me too is it good is our signature section where we give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating tour day good that is an eight out of eight so brian is snow day 2000 good yeah so pretty solidly as i was going through i was thinking four out of eight uh good ish and while we've talked and at certain moments, it's definitely swayed pretty firmly into five good for me because there there is a lot that I like. Uh, it feels like a snow day and I like snow days. So it, it delivered in that regard. Uh, I think what tips it just barely back over into the four, just uh, just above the freezing point is the farts. <laughs> Those are big for me. It's like, it wasn't just that there was a fart joke. It was leaning into farts. Yeah. Um. So I, I think it stays in uh, in its home base at, at four. Good-ish for me. Uh, a little bit better than Last Day of Summer, because I, I'm not, like, actively annoyed by anybody too much. At least not a lead character. No, yeah. No Jansons here for me. Right. So that's where I'm at. So what are you thinking, Dan? You mentioned 
last day of summer, Jansen Panettiere. I don't think I shared this on uh, air yet, but my brother who listens to the podcast wanted to get me a cameo of Jansen Panettiere for me, given that I mock him on a weekly basis on a podcast. And I, I can't imagine why, but Jansen canceled the cameo request. He didn't send me a video message. We've been janceled. <laughs> I want to know what your brother told him, though. It's like... I know. why he Did he tell him you dunk on him on a weekly basis? Was that the setup? Right. Did he tell him that I use him as a unit of measure for how bad a child actor is? How annoying and movie torpedoing a, a under 12-year-old can be to a film? I, I'm not sure. It's a good question. Well, if he did, that's not how you go about asking for a cameo. <laughs> but maybe we can ask your brother if he comes on the show again. And I think he will. I think we're going to see him in the next month or two. But yeah, uh, thank you, Will, for the thought on that. But yeah, no Jansons in Snow Day, at least from my perspective. So this is a movie that short circuits my ability to think critically. And part of me is attempted to be silly in the rating that I give this due to my fondness for it. And part of me is determined to be honest about if you were to go up to a random person on the street and they talk about Snow Day. And they would say, hey, is, oh, you've seen Snow Day? Is it a good movie? And like, what could I say with a straight face? What could I tell them? Could I tell them that it is a good movie? Brian, I don't think I could tell them that it's a good movie. So what do I do? Do I follow my heart or do I follow my brain? And the compromise that I came to is that I'm going to give this a very gentle five out of eight. I'm going to call this a good movie. And I, I do think it does enough things to make you fond of it that I I will stand up for calling it a good movie in a basic sense. But, you know, take the caveats that it's a year 2000 Nickelodeon production aimed at 11 year olds like I was in the year 2000. So I'm, I'm going to land on a five. So there we go. Yeah. On the other hand, a lot of my goodwill for it comes from the fact that it's a 2000 Nickelodeon. <laughs> That is the flip side of it, yeah. Like, that they're down in the snow hole playing Rugrats on PlayStation 1. Right, and 64, yeah. Yeah. We got a Swedish pop machine giving us music on the closing credits. <laughs> I agree. So, Brian, we got through Snow Day. We, we talked more about it than maybe it deserved, but I'm, I'm here for it, and this was fun. Oh, no, we always bring our, our hearts and our minds to bear and, you know, say what's, what's in our brains. So what are we going to be discussing next week on The Goods? All right, so we are in January, and if you've been with us for a while, you might know that my birthday comes in January, and this coming week is one of our vaunted birthday episodes. Whoa. That's right. So like the last one that I hosted, I'm going to bring my brother on because he has also got a late January birthday. And last time around, we burned through the key birthday film for us, which is the Rock of Fire Explosion documentary. Uh, so I had to scratch my head a bit, and Snow Day put me in the mood to revisit another early 2000s family film targeted at kids. And so we are going to be taking a look at the Spy Kids franchise, at least the original trilogy released 2001 through 2003 Ooh. and these were i think directed by robert rodriguez and uh, definitely they are films that uh, my brother and i watched and kind of bonded over nice 
Okay, cool. I watched the first Spy Kids when I was younger, but it has been more than a decade since I've watched it and multiple years since I thought about this movie. So this will be a good rewatch for me and then I'll catch up with parts two and three. So cool. Birthday episode. I'm stoked, dude. Those are fun. Yep. You'll get to see Spy Kids 2 and 3, and I'll be turning 32. So I'll, I'll, I'll make it thematic as best I can. Yeah, I'll tie it in somehow. It's it's maybe not a birthday film per se, but uh, I, I think we'll have lots to talk about. And if you can work 2 to the 5th power in there, then that would be an extra bonus. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm turning 100,000 in binary, so I got to reckon with that. <laughs> uh, so join us next time on The Goods. Now that you've heard from us, let's hear from someone else. Email us a review of Snow Day or any film we've previously discussed, and we might read your review on the air right here next week. If we do pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Brian, our review of the week this week comes from a letterboxed reviewer named Kevin Falk. He wrote this review in 2019. He gave it two and a half stars, which is pretty close to the rating that I would give it. I'd maybe bump it up to three stars out of five. But Kevin Falk wrote, This movie literally has a villain named Snowplow Man, whose sidekick is a fucking bird that he clearly has some sort of sexual relationship with. The bird is also named Clementine, which the snowplower sings at one part of this movie while almost running over several children that are trying to continue to make it snow. And why isn't this movie a meme again? So I did like the Oh My Darling Clementine Runner. Like the kids sing it when they slay Snowplow Man at the end of the movie, Brian. They tie him to the signpost. They sing that song. It never occurred to me that that was like part of his psychosexual relationship with this weird ass bird well i don't think the bird was clementine i think the machine was clementine okay so this reviewer's got it wrong i think so okay yeah what was the bird had another it was like trudy or something right i think that's right yeah but i mean he had a weird thing with the machine too but it was more like a it was done up like a world war ii plane yeah like you said it had the kill markers on the side it had like a pinup girl painted on it yeah he had his hang-ups for sure yeah, interesting dynamic. So anyways, Kevin, we might have corrected you on a, a detail there, but thank you for sharing your thoughts on Snow Day, your review of the week. And yeah, Brian, uh, we'd love to hear from the listeners. And I am looking forward to watching Spy Kids Trilogy and talking with you about it next week. So. Oh, me too, Dan. As always, this was fun. And we might have some snow on the horizon, so... Remember that anything can happen on a snow day. Snow! Seven O's there, in case you didn't catch that. Bye, everyone. Bye.